0: Hello and welcome to episode three of the History Hotline. Today we are going to be talking about the history of Ray and Nephew rum. Ray and Nephew was established in 1825. It's been around for an extremely long time and it's a bit of a cult classic, I'd say, at the moment. Um, It's a 63% overproof rum, a white rum, extremely strong, commonly used in Jamaican culture because it's a Jamaican rum. It's used in cakes, it's used in drinks, in cocktails and it's also used um, as a kind of herbal healing remedy for coughs, colds. You put it on your chest, you can put it on your forehead, you can put it in your tea. This is my nan speaking, not me. Um, but it's it's often, you know, cited to have special powers, this Ray and Nephew. And today we're going to talk about how it came about, how the brand started um, and also setting that within the context of Jamaica in the 19th century. So firstly, a few facts. 90% of rum bought in Jamaica currently is Ray and Nephew and of that brand. Um, there was one point in Jamaica, I remember being on holiday and... I thought people were joking when they were saying that rum is cheaper than bottled water. Um, However, I've come to realise that was actually true. There was a point um, in, I think, the uh, mid-2000s where um, a bottle of rum, you know, milliliter for milliliter, would have been cheaper than a bottle of water, which says probably more about the price of bottled water, but also just how accessible rum is in Jamaica, especially Rare Nephew. Um, Jamaica produces the widest variety of rums in the world. The island has the capacity to produce over 50 50 million litres of rum annually. Um, And Jamaican rums are currently sold in over 70 countries around the world. So, you know, when we think of Jamaica, we think of maybe the music, maybe the athletes, maybe the holidays, maybe the food. Um, and the culture, but I don't necessarily think rum is always so heavily associated with Jamaica, but clearly Jamaica is having its influence over the world in this alcoholic field as well. I think it's best to start with a little bit of a history of Jamaica, just to put this company into context um, when we arrive at the 19th century and 1825 in particular. So Jamaica is originally inhabited by Arawak Indians. Um, they named the land Jamaica, spelled X-A-Y-M-A-C-A, um, and that means land of wood and water. Um, Jamaica is very, you know, despite the beaches and everything, it's a very green island. It's very mountainous, especially in the centre of the island. Um, and, you know, has, obviously, a lot of wood and water. <laughs> it is a small island surrounded by water. Um, so the Spanish um, arrived in Jamaica in 1494, Um, Christopher Columbus discovered the island. Of course, he didn't discover it. It already existed, but he took that claim and he claimed it for the Spanish crown. Um, And they, when the Spanish arrived on the island to invade, they enslaved the Arawak Indians um, and made them work for them. Slowly, well, actually not slowly, quite quickly, actually, the native population um, died out because of European diseases um, and obviously they were, you know, forced into slavery. And I think they were extinct by around 1600. Um, And so the Spanish started importing West Africans to Jamaica to fit, to fill the labour supply that the natives um, obviously couldn't fill anymore because they had died. In 1655, the English invaded. um, And this is where um, English kind of colonial rule starts in Jamaica. They defeated the Spanish. It was quite an uneventful battle. Um, They gave up quite easily. And it was during this time, actually, that a lot of enslaved Africans, enslaved by the Spanish, escaped into the island, um, into the interior mountainous regions and started forming independent colonies. And they became the Maroons. If you've ever heard of Nanny of the Maroons um, and the Maroon people, um, they're said to be um, at that time, they were said to have migrated kind of into the mountainous regions of Jamaica um, in order to kind of escape the enslavement from the Spanish, um, and in that little kind of brief gap where the English and Spanish are fighting a battle, they kind of take their eye off the oppression ball. Um, the some of the African um, enslaved people are able to escape um, and build their own communities, and those communities still exist today. And the Maroon people are still um, present in Jamaica now. So England win that little battle with the Spanish. And they start to set up shop in Jamaica. They pick Kingston, which is the capital city of Jamaica, currently, um, and they decide to build Port Royal at the mouth of the Kingston Harbour. It became a hub for shipping and for trade, which is obviously what you know these European countries uh, were doing all over the world. They were trying to trade. Um, they were trying to get access to kind of exotic goods that they couldn't or didn't have before um so the kingston harbor um known as port royal it was a hub for um sex workers for piracy for privateering um, and it was actually known as the wickedest city on earth until it was engulfed by a tidal wave in ni- m1692 um so quite um by those standards and today's standards even it was quite um said to be quite an immoral place um and going against you know all that god had had said for the world especially because um the kind of rhetoric with colonialism is that these european powers went around the world to bring civilization and bring you know christianity and bring god's you know, graciousness and his mercy to these savage people. Um, Yet when they went to Jamaica, um, they brought, you know, prostitution, sex workers, which obviously goes against, you know, what is in the Bible. They brought piracy, they brought privateering, um, thefts. And it was just, it was known as the wickedest wickedest city on earth. Yet the British would still run with this narrative that they came to, to to colonize and make things all beautiful and civilize the savages. So that's quite an interesting, in, interesting thing that happened. Um, and even more interesting, and a perfect segue into our conversations about rum, is the fact that one of the privateers um, that worked in Port, Port Royal. And by the way, a privateer is um, a private person or private warship that's authorized by the government to attack foreign shipping. It was an accepted part of naval warfare uh, by the European powers. They all kind of agreed to the fact that privateering would be okay and um it was accepted and so essentially say for example the spanish um had a ship uh they were trading goods and it was coming from spain to cuba let's say they'd colonized cuba um a privateer would be able to intercept that ship and steal all the goods and cargo from it and claim it for the British Crown. And they would get a cut as well. Uh, So they were technically like legal pirates. They were government pirates, basically. Um, And one of the most famous privateers um, in Port Royal was a man called Captain Henry Morgan, and if you're, you know, if you're quick on it, you'll you'll think maybe Captain Henry Morgan, Captain Morgan, Captain Morgan's rum. <laughs> um he was a privateer and he he made his wealth from that that job and that line of work and he used his wealth to buy plantations on the island um and enslave people so that he could make um the sugar, harvest the sugar for his Captain Morgan's rum which obviously you know has now grown and obviously they don't use um slave labor to to um harvest sugar and to grow the sugarcane anymore um but th- this is these are the roots of of these rum companies because before the industrial revolution there wasn't the equipment there wasn't the technology to harvest and distill alcohols in the same way that it's done now um so Cap- Captain Morgan Captain Henry Morgan a privateer and He um, completed a lot of raids. He was known for um, his raids. He was a very, very famous man Um, in England. He had like a cult following. Um, He was eventually arrested because I think whilst it was legal the colonial powers that be had the power to also stop them, obviously. Um, So he had done raids in Cuba and Panama, in Venezuela, and he had obviously been really successful at this because he'd managed to open so many plantations with this wealth. So in the 19th century, you have the British who are in charge on the island of Jamaica. They have colonised it and their rule is law. And the trading of um enslaved people from specifically most most of the time it was west africa but not limited to um just west africa when it came to the caribbean um these people were you know taken from their families taken from their their homes uh, transported to the caribbean where they would work on the uh sugar plantations uh, in the 19th century sugarcane um was Britain, britain british Jamaican's main source of income um piracy prior to that was the main source of income. those raids, those privateers you know going and attacking those um ships that was their main source of income that is how they were funding the empire and then later on in the nineteenth century, sugar replaces that, and sugar plantations become the i guess the gold standard um at the time in terms of wealth and income. And the sugar industry, it's an extremely labour intensive industry, especially back then, you know, prior to the Industrial Revolution, prior to um, some of the equipment that you have now um, that makes that job a little bit easier. Um, So that's why the British had to continue to bring, you know, it was literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of enslaved um, African people to Jamaica. Um, And that's how you know, black people ended up in Jamaica because obviously prior to that, the Arawak Indians wouldn't have necessarily been. They would have obviously now we would define them as black, but blackness has changed and who is allowed to call themselves black has obviously changed and developed over time. Um, But back then they wouldn't have necessarily been labelled as black people. They would have been labelled as like natives. Um, But this is how black people begin to come into the Caribbean and This is also, I guess, the reason why the cultures and even the languages um, in some West African countries kind of show up in Jamaican culture, in Jamaican Patoa. And this is kind of how that mixing all begins. And also, obviously, the the British people who had been sent to Jamaica as well. There were convicts um, who were sent there as punishment. And then a lot of people obviously realised there was a lot of wealth in Jamaica. If they had the money to fund plantations um, and enslave people, then they could also build wealth in, in the Caribbean. And so this mixing of, you know, maybe the few kind of native people that were left, um, West Africans and, uh, white people f- from Britain. So sugar plantations, obviously we said it became, you know, the, the main source of income. And so there were plantations all over the island. The parish of Hanover had the most, um, but they were everywhere. Um, and I think I have, I've been to, um, a sugar plantation, well used to be a sugar plantation in Jamaica and they are just vast spaces Um, obviously some of them have ruins um, of the great houses that used to be there some of them now in Jamaica are tourist attractions Um, for example Rose Hall because they were said to be um, the White Witch of Rose Hall who was... um, a woman that owned plantations and enslaved people and treated them extremely badly. Obviously, all slaves were treated extremely badly, but I think she was notorious in how brutal and how violent she was towards them. Um, and a lot of there's a lot of kind of myths and legends about the fact that the place is now haunted uh, by her ghost because she was killed. By around 1832, the medium-sized plantation in Jamaica had about 150 enslaved people. Um, the work was backbreaking. It was cutting heavy canes by hand, grinding them to release the sugars, harvesting them in rows, planting the stalks. Um, and there were numerous revolts and violence resistance. Um, and then so many people died in Jamaica in the kind of pursuit of freedom. Um, it's often not spoke about, but, you know, these enslaved peoples, they they did not They were not passive. They were not, you know, just sitting down, taking the hand that had been dealt to them. There were rebellions, rebellions, so many rebellions. Uh, There were revolts, there were uprisings. There's a Samuel Sharp rebellion. He's probably one of the most famous in Jamaica. And as I mentioned earlier about the Maroons who had escaped into the interior part of the island, they would help... um, you know, enslaved people to escape, they'd help bring them out and then welcome them into the Maroon community. There were so many battles between the Maroons and the British, um, as the Maroons tried to, you know, save the people that had been transported there to to be um enslaved on the island. Just to, you know, further set this context, um obviously we've said um that Rare Nephew was established in 1825, um, but then it was in 1833 that slavery was abolished, um, within the British colonies. Um, and obviously, you know, this is all great. The narrative is very much the case that, you know, British people are oh so benevolent and oh so kind that they let these people free. Um, which is not the case. Um, and it's not a helpful narrative to push in my personal opinion. Um, because in 1833, when slavery was abolished. Um, it was not really abolished because there were a period of apprenticeship and basically it meant that for six years, four to six years, people that were enslaved and they were required to continue labouring for their former masters for, for the time, for four to six years, in exchange for provisions. So now they were working for, say, food and for rent. And obviously if you are living um, in someone else's place, they can charge whatever they would like in rent. And so it's not like, you know, these people were working for a really nice accommodation um, and great food. It was basically, you know, a continuation of slavery um, for another six years. And then after that, you may or may not know the slave owners, those people who had enslaved people had plantations, they were compensated at the end of slavery so they were given sums of money based on how many people they owned um as a compensation because obviously their main source of income could not it could not be carried out anymore they did no longer had access to free labor so rather than you know giving reparations to the people that had been working for free for hundreds of years instead they gave a compensation to those who owned them and the thing is you can't tie up this idea of the british being benevolent and ending slavery. When you think about the fact that they were compensated Um, and UCL have done some extremely amazing work um, documenting and calculating the money that each uh, plantation owner would have received and then tracing those lines to modern day uh, people. Um, And so you can kind of tell um, which families in Britain have benefited from, from slave labour and then the money that was paid to those owners in the close of slavery. And then anyway, after apprenticeship period was abolished, um, I think that was about 1838, the people had to kind of find a way to get labour, cheap labour, because obviously they couldn't enslave people anymore. And so um, indentured labourers from Asia, mostly Indian India and China, They came over to the island um, and that's why the island's kind of population is is quite mixed ethnically because you have obviously, we've mentioned before, um, people from Africa that had come over uh, by force. Um, The white British people, you have the natives in the beginning um, and now we have um, quite a significant number of Indian and Chinese um, indentured labourers are now also doing the work of the enslaved people for uh, very low wages Um, and they were tied to... people that brought them over because they would pay their fare and they wouldn't be allowed to go back until they'd worked for a certain time and paid off that fare. Um, It was again another exploitative disgusting system Um, but it obviously you know created wealth for the British Empire and that's all they cared about at the time. I think that's enough you know scene setting for for this podcast. Um, We're going to get into the story of Ray and Nephew. So John Ray um, he was a wheelwright which I didn't know this before today, but he's that's someone that makes wooden wheels. Um, and he um, was a white British man and he lived in Jamaica. And he opened up a tavern in Kingston um, in the 1820s, so around the time that, you know, Port Royal is up and running, um, I think, obviously, a long time after the, the tidal wave that engulfed it and it cleaned up itself a little bit. Um, but it was still the centre of trade. It was a seaport, it was the commercial centre of the island and there was a theatre called Theatre Royale, which was the most fashionable theatre in the New World, you know, at the time. And by the New World, I mean, you know, the countries that have recently been discovered by the European colonisers. Um... So John Ray decides to open up um, a tavern called the Shakespeare Tavern next door to Theatre Royale because he kind of saw that, you know, there's a lot of traffic, a lot of theatre goers um, and they would stop off for a drink maybe before or after the show. Um, Both these um, things are still open in Jamaica right now, um, but the Shakespeare Tavern is now called Ray's Tavern. Um, And it was purchased in 2014 by um, a Jamaican man called Anthony Eastwood, who was renting it in the 90s. Um, And he's kind of he's very committed to kind of upholding that space as, um, you know, a place for people to enjoy themselves and have a drink and have a nice time. And I believe the theatre as well is still there, but I don't think it's in use. I think it's um, damaged. It was damaged in a hurricane um, a while ago, but it hasn't really been kind of back um, to how it how it was um, in the 1800s for a while. Um, so within that tavern, John Ray um, starts to become a rum merchant and he gets quite successful at it. He gets quite good. Um, so in, I think it was around 1860, um, he decides to take on his nephew, who is called Charles James Ward, and he um, calls the business <laughs> J. Ray and Nephew. It is that simple. It is a man and his nephew um and he retires um John Ray so the original he retires in 1862 unfortunately passes away in 1870 um and his nephew becomes the sole property of the business um so Charles takes over um leaves the name as J Ray and nephew and um he opens he opens a headquarters um in the Shakespeare tavern and then the rum starts to win prizes so it's won international um exhibition prizes they won three gold medals for their 10-year 15-year and 25-year rum, um and just has this kind of trajectory of just awards and accolades um and it does really well um so in 1863 they expand um the headquarters move from the Shakespeare Tavern onto a larger premise on Port Royal Street and it is again located in the commercial area um next to a major bank and a post office. So, again, you know, they've picked a really good space uh, for these headquarters. In 1916, uh, the Lindo Lindo Brothers & Co. purchased Ray & Nephew um, and immediately after, the new company, uh, J. Ray & Nephew Limited uh, purchased the Appleton Estate which is one of the oldest and most famous of all Jamaica's sugarcane estates. Um, and I don't know if you've heard of maybe Appleton rum, which is a brown rum. So that is now under the control of J-Ray Nephew. So that is, the, you know, the time where the 19 20th century, sorry, um, where it's expanding and um, they're purchasing other companies um, and they've been purchased by Linda Brothers and Company and, um, and right now actually, um, J. Rare Nephew is owned by um the Italian spirits company, Campari. It's part of the Campari group. And that acquisition was done in two thousand and twelve, so quite recently. A lot of people are often quite shocked to maybe find out that Rare Nephew isn't a black owned business. It's not um it wasn't started by black people and now it's obviously not owned by um a black company, um, even though it is, you know, a rum that comes out of Jamaica, um, and a lot of a, to- a lot of tourism in Jamaica is tied up around rare nephew and um the culture of you know drinking rum in Jamaica, um, things like the tavern and you can do rum tours and things like that, and it's obviously such a popular drink. It was cheaper than water at one point, um, but it is not a a black owned company, and that is. That just tells you, I guess, about Jamaica in the 19th century. In 1825, the black people on the island of Jamaica uh, were enslaved, um, or there were the Maroons um, that were, like, hiding, basically, in the middle of the island. It would be quite unlikely that black people would have been able to start rum room company. And like with a lot of spirits companies, I think it's... Ooh, I don't want to slander any companies, but, but I'm certain that it's Jack Daniels that stole the technique of um, I think it's like a charcoal mellowing technique of distilling the spirit and it was a man I believe called Nathan Green um, a black man who came up with that um, and then it was stolen uh, by Jack Daniels um, to make that whiskey Uh, but I thought it was interesting to note that in 1997 um, a lady called Joy Spence the Jamaican lady um, she was made master blender at J. Ray and Nephew. Um, And she's the first woman to occupy this position in this whole of the spirits industry in the world. And, you know, she's just from a small island in the Caribbean and she's now master um, blender at J. Ray and Nephew. And obviously we've said, you know, J. Ray and Nephew um, purchased the Appleton estate. So that means she's in charge of that room as well. And I watched a few interviews with her and I think her job might be, you know, top five jobs of all time because she gets to taste rum for a living someone pays her to taste rum and don't get me wrong there's so much more to the job than just drinking rum um she's such an educated woman she did her undergraduate degree at the University of the West Indies and taught chemistry for a while um then she moved to England to study analytical chemistry at the University of Loughborough and It's it's a chemistry side that is her expertise, not just tasting a good rum and then marketing it. Um, She's all about the kind of the chemistry of the rum and the science behind it, um, which I know absolutely nothing about. I just know about the drinking of the rum. So I thought it was quite interesting that it's kind of started off in 1825 with these British people in Jamaica, uh, obviously taking advantage of the sugar crop and how profitable it is. Um, opening up this tavern and which is now kind of a key part of Jamaican culture in Kingston and it's a, you know, notable place um, which has obviously now been bought by a Jamaican man and the fact that now the master blender at J R nephew is a Jamaican woman. um, I kind of feel like it's a reclaiming of something that was always Jamaica's um, in some ways. Obviously, it's still owned by the Campari group. But it would be, I thought it would be a nice way to end um, to leave you with uh, some black-owned rum companies um that exist within the uk sorry if you're listening elsewhere and you can't get your hands on this alcohol but it was black pound day this weekend and i think it would be nice to to shout out some of the companies so there's las olas um and i think all these companies are you can go on their websites or on their instagrams um las olas which is the first premium black owned spice rum brand in the whole of the uk um there's matuga rum which is based in livingston in west Lothian. Um, and that's a spiced rum and golden rum, and they've both meddled internationally in rum competitions um, since their inception. There's Cabby's Rum, which is a white rum, and it's also, they they made, created the first rum distillery in London. Um, there's Forever Rum Cream and then Jamaican Rum Vibes, which is a kind of pre-made, pre-made rum cocktail. Yeah, rum is, rum is from sugar, um, and sugar is, you know, from the Caribbean, and it is, distilled there, it is grown there, it can really only survive there. Um and it's interesting, I guess, to see this maybe reclaiming of of this alcohol, of this spirit, um and the culture that comes along with it. And I think that's quite that's quite nice to see um in this in these times. Um I think that's everything there is to say about the history of Red nephew um the history is a bit it's a bit patchy i'd say it's one of the more patchy histories i've read and i think maybe if i had access to an archive in jamaica we could fill in a few more of those gaps um in the little timeline but that is all i have to say for now um please do enjoy and drink responsibly Um, if this podcast made you want to have have a sip or a rum and coke um, please do it responsibly and have an incredible week thank you so much for listening goodbye